1: Who is getting upset in the NCAA tournament? What is the real value of a basketball scholarship? What was it like playing in the NBA in the 90s? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today, I am very excited to bring on the show, Jim McElvain who currently is the color radio voice for the Marquette men's basketball team and also played seven seasons in the NBA. And I can't wait to just start breaking stuff down with you. So, Jim, thanks for coming on the show today. I appreciate you having me on. Do you have, is there any problem being a Marquette man that I am a Badger?
0: My brother went to Madison. Um, my daughter might end up going to Madison. It's a, it's a good school. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with it.
1: Okay, good to know. I just want to make sure I know know where I stand uh, to to start off the whole thing. So, um, Well, you know, since you're knee-deep in the college game and you've been calling the games for Marquette, uh, I thought maybe we could touch upon what's happening. There's something going on this weekend, I think, right?
0: NIT tournament. Marquette's (laughs) going to be playing tonight against Harvard
1: Okay. at at
0: the Al Maguire Center.
1: Okay, well, how do you feel about that game against Harvard? Do you think that you guys are going to be able to win it at home? You know,
0: I think... They have a good chance. Harvard lost uh, one of their their key guys to injury, and then they had another guy go down in the uh, Ivy League uh, Mm -hmm. Conference Tournament Championship game. Um, But they're still a very good team. Tommy Amaker could have left years ago and taken a more high-profile, better-paying job somewhere else. But uh, I read an article several years ago about his situation at Harvard, and he's really happy there. His wife is happy there. She's got a great job. And, it's you know, if you're going to – coach at a school that's so focused on academics like Harvard is, why not have it be Harvard? Because it's the Harvard of Harvard. (laughs) You're going to get that certain tier of kids around the country who are really good basketball players who would love to take an an opportunity to go play at a school like Harvard and get a Harvard education. And and when you look at his roster, uh, he had the 10th best recruiting class two years ago in the country. Period. Not just like, you know, of the smart schools, 10th Overall, he's got some very talented players. Their guys that are like McDonald's All-American nominees and, and they're all-time leading scorers at their high school. So it's, you know, he's got, you know, Seth and Reed and Bryce, you know, a bunch of waspy sounding names, but these kids <laughs> can actually ball. And he's got some very talented athletes.
1: Well, you know, it is exciting as we move forward in the game of basketball. And I think with training methods that exist now versus when we were growing up. Uh, you you it's, it's expected that some people who might not what you wouldn't normally assume would be good athletes or good basketball players are now able to unlock so much more of their ability right and so suddenly you now have like those kind of kids who I mean I just watched a highlight of a guy oh my god he's going to Georgetown next year from high school uh, Mac something or other and this kid's six1 and like is hitting his head in the rim and I, and I, and, I, and he's a white kid so it's like I can't believe you know, what, and, but I know, and I've seen it, because I've trained, I've had you know, my kids that I've coached uh, you know, the, the proper ways we have now, the technology we have, and yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, do you kind of wish that maybe you had some, some of the more modern training stuff when you were growing up? Well, you know, I think
0: I certainly would have benefited from it, but I was fortunate to be surrounded by great basketball people growing up who also had a, a level focus in life. And, and I think when people look at the issues the NCAA is having right now, um, the root of it starts at the high school levels, and especially with AAU. I spent most of the last summer embedded in AAU culture, and it's a mess. And it's, it's, you know, to use Donald Trump's term, it's a cesspool, really. And there's people in there with no basketball background, uh, with no basketball pedigree, who are determining the destination and the course of life of a lot of young men that, and, and probably girls to, to a lesser degree, um, that, that really don't belong in the game. And there's a lot of people who really have a, a great breadth and depth of knowledge of the game, who have limited access or no access to these kids, uh, just because they're not walking around with their hand out, looking for a sweatsuit for access to talk to a player, or they want to give they want a coach to give them $500 in cash so they can look at some you know outdated roster of who's playing in an AAU term. It's just it's a total scam, and and it's the NCAA's fault because. If they didn't allow coaches to go out and observe these AAU tournaments, the AAU tournaments and the whole culture would just vanish in a heartbeat. And and I'm actually wearing a five-star shirt today. I've worked five-star camps a couple different times. And when I was in high school, that was the place to go. And when I talk about being surrounded by great basketball people, I had a great high school coach in Bob Lech, I had a great AAU coach in Rick Cobb, who was a former Marquette player and a former college coach. Uh, But I had great instruction at Five Star, and it was coaches like Billy Donovan and Jerry Wainwright, and I had, you know, Joe Dooley was one of my counselors, and Christian Leitner was one of my counselors. And that's, you know, that was, as I talk to coaches today, especially coaches who went through it, that was kind of like the golden era of AAU basketball, because there was still so much of a heavy emphasis on these skill camps, Mm -hmm. where the kids went and they really worked with experts, not you know, some coach is gonna roll out the balls and watch kids play three games in two days. These are guys that worked on half court station drills and there was no glory or drama. There was no dunking allowed at five star until the All-Star game. And and that's missing now because one coach got upset at another coach about access that one coach got to a player to camp and, and the NCAA blew up the whole camp system and basically handed the keys to all this to shoe companies and the AAU structure that quickly devolved into the mess that it is now.
1: You know, it's funny you bring that up at that time frame because, you know, so I was a basketball manager at Wisconsin. So I probably, like, handed you a towel um, when you came. Um, I can't remember. I know we played you at least once in those in my junior or senior year, right? You must have come to Madison at least one of those well, years, right?
0: We we alternated at that yeah. time. Um, we'd play, like, I think we played at Marquette my freshman and sophomore years and in yeah. Madison my, my Oh, no, my, my freshman and junior year in Madison, my sophomore and senior years.
1: All right, yeah, because for some reason I'm getting UW-Milwaukee mixed up too with Bennett when he was there. So now I can't picture Marquette coming in. But no, I,
0: at Green Bay. Green Bay. Bennett was at Green Bay.
1: Wait, well, but wasn't he in Milwaukee then?
0: <laughs>
1: have to go no, check, right?
0: Steve, Steve Antrim was in Milwaukee.
1: Then? Okay. Because I remember yeah, I having so. to deal with, you know, um, uh, oh, my God. What's Tony the... was
0: definitely in Green Bay playing, so I'm sure his dad was definitely up there coaching. Oh,
1: okay. I okay. I wonder what I'm thinking. Okay, maybe maybe it was Green Bay then, not Milwaukee, but maybe you'd be Milwaukee. Again, this is, this is too long ago. A Long tra- time ago. Yeah, but the point is, is that you know <laughs> I learned a lot of the fundamentals, and a lot of the training from you know the coaches that when I was there were Stu Jackson, uh, Sean Miller was an assistant, Sam Van Gundy was the other assistant there, uh, Tim Buckley, who you might remember, uh, who's been around. I know, I know Buckley. He was a Marquette guy for a while. Oh right, 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 right. Everyone gets around everywhere. James Whitford yeah. was a uh, the, my head the head manager who's now over at uh, Xavier, uh, no Miami, Ohio, somewhere. He was with Sean Miller for all those years. But what I what I kind of look at is that sort of is ground zero for all the dogmatic uh, uh, skills training that we, that we that coaches still cling to now. So I, don't, cause I almost feel like in the last I don't know fifteen years we've as we've gotten HD and frame by frame we can really study what the players are doing. Like, I feel like we've developed a lot of sort of new fundamentals that fly in the face of what we taught back then, and it kind of feels like, you know, that 94, 95, that's when all that stuff solidified from the last thing 50 years, I and mean, they were still doing stuff then that we've been teaching right from the 60s and the 70s. What do you think about that? Do you feel like th- there are, some, like, you know, new ways of coaching and teaching that you've seen being around these teams? I, I think there's
0: certainly been great advancements in the way they manage athletes' bodies, Um in the Marquette kids wear that little thing on the base of their neck that tracks all their biometrics when they play and when they practice and they know how many steps these guys have taken they track their heart rate and all that type of stuff um, but to a certain extent there's, there's a lot of old school teaching that will never go away you know the game changes and ebbs and flows and, and the pro game is more of a three point game and the traditional low post game has kind of gone away from the pro game uh, but the fundamentals are all still there and in the basics of how to play the game and, and team concepts and, and when you look at the success that that Tony Bennett's had at Virginia I mean it, it starts with defense and that's something that every coach I ever had preached and, and it holds true today he only lost two games this season he'll lose pretty quickly in the tournament probably because he's lost a sixth man um, but it's you know those fundamentals they don't they don't go away.
1: Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I, um, so as you mentioned, you know, the, the NCAA tournament this year. So you're, you're thinking that Virginia might be an early out because of injury. Um, who do you have? Uh, there's some Big East teams in there that you're probably well familiar with. How far do you think that they're going to go?
0: I have my sheet right here. And uh, I, I had Virginia losing to Arizona anyway before they, they had the kid with a broken wrist just because I, I think they're going to get out, out-talented by Arizona. And okay. I think if it wasn't going to be Arizona, it was going to be somebody else in their bracket because uh, it's just it's a tough gauntlet to run. And and I just you know my yeah. guess is as good as anybody who just picks based on team colors and mascots. But uh, I've I watched the teams a little bit, and that's just my sense that it's it's hard to sustain that and and get through a basketball season with two losses.
1: Fair enough. And then you don't think they're going to be able to handle Aiton on Arizona?
0: No, he's he's a handful, man. And. <laughs> yeah. And he's good. Um, And I actually, I don't have Big East teams going all that far. I have Nova losing to Wichita State in the Sweet 16. Seton Hall losing to New Mexico State in the Sweet 16. Can you believe I got New Mexico State to the Elite Eight? Wow. Um, Xavier losing to Gonzaga in the Sweet 16. Um, There's somebody else, right? Uh, Butler. Butler losing to Purdue in the second round. And... Oh, uh, where, where was the other one? It was Oh, Creighton losing to Virginia in the second round. I call that the third round now cuz that stupid four-game playing thing they do.
1: Right. Uh, there, oh, you don't like that?
0: No, it's terrible. <laughs> honest Honestly, there's too many Division 1 teams. How many Division 1 schools are there?
1: 400? 390? What is it?
0: 351.
1: Okay, 351.
0: Yes. There should be 256. Everybody should go to the tournament. <laughs> if they want to keep having these conference tournaments, you know they're welcome to do that. Shorten your regular season by a week. Um, otherwise, you know the the Sun Coast Conference or whatever that has you know 90, 99% empty seats. You don't need to mess around with that and make teams travel and spend a bunch of money to have a conference tournament. So 256 teams are in. Everybody plays on the higher seeds' home court the first weekend, and then you go off to your other. You know, regional areas in, huh. in your 64 bracket. After that,
1: well, how are you going to do the seeding with that many teams? It's going to take them uh, a month. We're no, not it wouldn't take that. that long. Look at all the different things
0: they have right now. They've got quadrants. They've got RPI. They got BPI. It wouldn't okay. be that difficult with 256. I mean, they already they already have lists of 1 to <laughs> 351 for a, b- a billion different stats. You know, they can. <clears throat> they do it for 68 now. They were they were ready to do it in, for what 92 until John Fein, Feinstein basically shut it down with that one question he asked about how are you going to make sure the kids aren't missing more school when you're when you're adding that much and so yeah they shut it down. So they want to expand it. I just I think they need to go to 256. I think the bar to get into to division one was too low for a long time mm-hmm. and especially as they're talking about we need to pay these kids. There's already a a grand canyon of a divide between the haves and the have-nots in college basketball. And, and to pretend that anybody, even outside of the top 100, can hang with anybody inside of the top 50 on a regular basis is just ludicrous. So you know, you might as well just lop it off at 256 and put everybody in and, and make a big deal out of it. And then Division II, as, as, and we call it the Homer 256, my co-host on, on the Marquette broadcast, Steve the Homer True, came up with the 256. Um, his, his thought is, you know, that, that was his idea, but uh, Division two, if you win the Division two National Championship, you come up to Division one, and you get to stay there for oh. 10 years. And, okay. and then, who gets kicked out of Division one? You can use any number of <laughs> things that you want. You know, what's, what's your APR? What's your graduation rate? What's your attendance? You know, what's your record? Or are you just not competitive? And, and whatever you want to do to, to send one team down every year.
1: I didn't know you were a socialist.
0: I mean, you're describing uh, you know, the
1: European model, I think, right? Isn't that how they do it for soccer it, and stuff? That's how they do it for soccer. I don't know if, it <laughs> that, if that's
0: socialist because if you look at the system we have now, there's a whole lot of schools going around in, in the preseason uh, playing a bunch of what I call them paper puddle games where they just go out and, and know they're going to get the tar beat out of them for most games for you know $60,000, $70,000 paychecks. It's a, it's a welfare system for college sports, essentially. I wanted to take
1: a quick break to talk to you about Simple Contacts a convenient way to reorder your contact lenses that will save you money. When my wife runs out of her contacts, it's normally a nightmare to renew her prescription, and sometimes she's forced to wear her old ones for days until she finds the time to go out and pick them up. With simple contacts, they bring the doctor to you. You can take a vision test at home in under five minutes, then a real doctor reviews your test and writes you a new prescription. This isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam, but it's the next best thing. Simple Contacts offers every brand of lenses and their prices are unbeatable. And shipping is free. But my listeners also get 30 bucks off their first Simple Contacts order with code COACHNICK. To save 30 bucks on your lenses, just go to simplecontacts.com coachnick or enter the code COACHNICK at checkout. Again, that's simplecontacts.com slash coachnick. Or just enter Coach Nick at checkout. Well, you know what? This is a, the, the most wide-ranging conversation I've had about college basketball. And we're going to touch upon a lot of things because, hey, let's get. I have some questions. What about the whole paying the players thing? I've had Luke Bonner come on and talk about it uh, a couple times, and I here, here's my t- my take. Having been in the, in the athletic department and seen behind the scenes a little bit, like I, I I will want to insist, and I think you played for four years, right? Yep. So I kind of feel like. We're kind of short shifting or whatever that word is short uh, changing the value of an education to some degree although at this point now it sounds like at least the top players aren't even really going to class at this point point. Um, and so so that is one thing uh, they get you know room and board there should be value to that and, and and no one should be hungry like the other like that guy said a few years ago but um, we I did the math at some point where if you you know I think what the rule is and correct me if I'm wrong if you pay the, the basketball players, the rule kicks in where you have to play, you have to pay everybody in D one. Isn't that right in every sport?
0: Yeah, I've heard Jay Billis talk about it before, and 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 they're like, well, what do you pay the swimmers? And he, his joke is, you give them the loose change out of the commons room couch. Um, but there's Title Nine rules that you have to consider, um, where you, you know, we had somebody from the women's team complain when I was at Marquette because Mohinder Basketballs gave everybody on our team like Letterman style jackets. And we also had letter jackets, but the women's team didn't get the Mohinder jackets, so um, we had to turn in either our letter jackets or the Mohinder jackets. So you turn in the Mohinder jacket or whatever, and then when you graduate, then you can have it back. Just you know, absurdity. So, um, <laughs> you know, I I think it's. I know Jay Billis has been one of the biggest critics, saying you got to pay these kids, but. You know, even even if you found a way to pay everybody and, and say, okay, your stipend's $5,000 a year per player or whatever, that's not going to stop anything. That's not going to stop shoe companies and boosters and agents from paying these guys even more. I mean, it's just stupid. And and I think what gets lost in this, and I, and I think it gets lost because I've never heard anybody talk about it, people stop at saying, well, there's value in the education and the room and the board, and there is, but there's... Even more and even more tremendous value in what I consider really a double education for college athletes, whether it's basketball or football or, or even the non revenue Olympic sports. Uh, when, when somebody comes out, if, if somebody's not an idiot and they take advantage of the opportunity that's presented to them, whatever school they come out of, they've graduated with a degree that can help them get a job, but they also have a resume at a very high level. For the last four years, of learning the game of basketball, learning the industry, you know, for basketball or whatever other sport, um, they've made connections with different coaches and people. I mean, they, you know, people look down on on the sports industry like, well, that's that's not a real job. That's a real job. These coaches are out there making six, seven figures. Mm-hmm. Assistant coaches are making six figures at a lot of these programs, and I I know a lot of guys who used to play at the college level and. I don't know anybody who wanted to get into basketball as an industry who hasn't found a job that, can, that they can live off of. Now, I know guys who have tried to get in at the NBA level and they, they don't know the right people, or they can't get a gig, but, but everybody who really wants a job, if they're willing to, willing, willing to put in the work, they can go out and they can make a living at it, whether you know, it's George Mirasan running skills camps and basketball camps, or it's you know, Joe Wolf as, a, as an assistant at UNC Wilmington, and that's a really, you know, these guys, if they work at it, it's a it's a comfortable living in terms of how much money they can make. So um, when you compare that with a normal student who goes through four years of college, they just get the one degree and they don't have the connections. And it, I mean, Jay Billis is making millions of dollars on ESPN. Jay Williams is making, I, you know, Marquette's paid me over the years. I've done the radio there for 13 years. You know, I've made hundreds of thousands of dollars doing radio. It's not money that you can make a living off of by itself but it's you know it's free mo- it's it's like f- i do the games for free and, right. and they're basically paying me to travel and be away from my family so um, <laughs> you know beyond beyond coaching beyond radio beyond tv you know there's administrative jobs there's all kinds of things that guys can get into that most of them don't even have on their radar i mean look at, look at how many former players are officials at the college level or the nba and and David Stern forever wanted more former players to be officials guys just don't want to do it that's a six-figure job starting six-figure job tons of travel not much of a home life but it's a six-figure job and you get every summer off just like you did when you were a player and and guys just don't even consider that you know they'd, they'd rather bumble around like Joe Smith does on, on his CNBC show and and pick, charge one kid $45 an hour for individual work and another one $82 an hour and and you know NBA officials are going out there making six figures a year and, and living a pretty comfortable life.
1: Yeah, and we're talking about the Joe Smith, uh, the, right, number one pick? Yeah, okay. yeah, number one pick. <laughs> um, all right, well how about this, true or false? It is impossible to have a successful or a top 25 program without being dirty.
0: I think it's false. And I think a lot of the, the coaches in the college game are clean. <clears throat> and it, it, it's hard because even if you're clean as a coach, who knows what a shoe company is doing behind the scenes in terms of trying to influence before a kid ever sets foot on your campus. Is, is he paying a kid um, to be on a certain AU program and they're going to funnel them into your school and you're getting paid by the, the shoe company so it's above board with, with you and the shoe company, but um, do you have some agent that's pulling strings behind the – before a kid even gets to college and is paying a kid, before he even gets to college. And then boosters, you know, you, you try to – I think most coaches do a pretty good job at keeping them all at arm's length and, and not allowing players to put themselves in compromising situations. Um, but I think there's a lot of programs out there that are clean. I think there's a lot of them that are excited about what the FBI is doing. They're looking forward to more people getting caught up in it because it's really an unfair fair playing field. And and the surprising thing for me as a former player, I've I was recruited by a lot of coaches. Uh, all over the country. I was recruited by coaches who have gotten in trouble or who have had reputations for being dirty coaches or cheating or their programs were, you know, Jim Herrick at UCLA, Pat Kennedy at Florida State. You know <laughs> yeah. you know what they offered
1: me? What?
0: They offered me jack squat. They offered me a, a, a scholarship and the, the opportunity to play at their schools. They didn't offer me anything inappropriate. So, <laughs> Really? You know, yeah, huh. and – and people say, well, other guys are getting paid, and I know guys who played at UCLA who, to this day, you know, they've got no reason to lie. They'll swear up and down, never got a thing. You know, they were they were scraping and struggling, and I and I totally believe them. Huh. And and I think it's possible. It, it's not like, you know, if a program's dirty, everybody in the program's dirty. Everybody's getting paid. I think it's possible that it's their their job and their their industry and their career. They know who wants to get paid and who doesn't. And and it's like never the two shall meet. And right. so I've I've talked to guys who have gotten paid, and from very some of them don't even know where the money came from. Um, but it's it's not easy to get into a conversation with those guys if you're one of the guys who never got paid. And and so I probably haven't had nearly as many conversations as other folks have. And then I've, I've you know I've talked to people who are like, yeah, who are we kidding? You know we, we paid all our guys, and and you know the hypocrites are the schools that were paying them and and you know never got caught. And, and the NCAA knows what's going on, and they turn a blind eye to it. So, Well, it's,
1: what are your thoughts on Sean Miller having, you know, the report is that he was caught on tape. And as far as I know, watching movies, you're supposed to call the money Big ZD, right? You're not supposed to call it money on the phone. But I guess they supposedly caught him, yet he is now going to stand up in the face of these charges and is trying to, I guess, fight them. What do you make of that whole situation?
0: Well, I, you know, they always say innocent until proven guilty. There were a lot of people in college basketball who were ready to, you know, say he was guilty. And just based on a report, not based on, you know, TMZ playing audio of a conversation he was having. It was just based on a report. So, um, you know, until that audio recording comes out and credible people have heard it and and all that stuff, I don't put much stock in that. Um, And I think coaches that cheat tend to be super paranoid, people by nature and super cautious people by nature <clears throat> and I would be surprised especially knowing who they're dealing with because they're not dealing with people who are you know well established and they've got you know careers and families and and you know all they're, they're dealing with runners and you know these got bag men and and people who are you know, working for this guy now, working for somebody else six months later. They, they're, you know, if they're cheating, I'm, I'm sure they're super cautious with people like that.
1: Well, let's take a little tr- journey through your playing career and some of the coaches you played for because it's kind of appropriate in some way. For a very brief moment, you had John Calipari as your coach.
0: I did, yeah.
1: What, what were your impressions of that? For I think it's about what, like maybe 20 games before he got fired that year.
0: Yeah, I liked him. We got along really well. Um, the organization, I think, was kind of a mess, not in terms of management. John John Nash was the GM. He drafted me when he was in Washington. I liked him a lot. But the ownership situation in New Jersey was just a cluster. I mean they had a bunch of different owners and a couple, you know, men that were at the front of the, the line and, and you know, in front of the media when it came to talking about ownership. But I don't know if Jay Z owned part of the team, Bill Cosby had like a small slice of the team and that was an interesting conversation when he came in and talked to us and then and then the Nets got or the Yankees got involved and there was some kind of Yankees Nets merger with George Steinbrenner and (laughs) and so you know Cal was in a tough spot they had made the playoffs the year before and the team just started out rough and guys got hurt and and uh it just it wasn't it was a it was a lockout year and everybody's rhythm was off in terms of you know. You're playing four games in five nights you know. To try to squeeze in as many as you can in the season. and, and uh, you know, I talked to him after he got fired, and <clears throat> I said, uh, you know, why are you messing around? You know, you've, you've climbed the mountain. You've been in the NBA. You know all the people. You've know, you got young kids. Why don't you go back to college and get some job somewhere? You'll be able to get into any, any house in the country because you have that NBA pedigree. And you'll have a safe, secure place for your family to grow up and your kids to go to the same school and have a normal life instead of bouncing around the NBA. And he went to Memphis and, and did really well there and went to Kentucky, and he's, he's been there ever since. And, and you know, not like you know Jim McElveen laid the course out for him, but, you know, it, it seemed to make sense to me, and, and it seemed to work pretty well for him up, up to this point.
1: Yeah, it certainly has. And he, uh, let's just say this, he'll never be a guy getting caught on – Tape talking about giving money to recruits. Never, never
0: say never. You know, okay. but I'd I'd be surprised. Um, you know, he's done so so well. Well, you'd be surprised
1: like, to get caught, is what you're saying, right?
0: Yeah, you know, think you know who would have thought some guy trying to fund some B movie would have been the the domino that started tumbling everything over. You know, that's that's where this all started, and, and mm-hmm. look where it's ended up now. So, um, you know, yeah. all these big you know, things that blow up in, in our society sometimes start in the most innocuous ways and, and it's shocking who gets caught up in, in the mix as everything goes down.
1: Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, I remember being at a, a big clinic uh, put on by George Raffling and one of my buddies who uh, was a coach at St. Anthony's in New Jersey, you know, under Bobby Hurley or Bob Hurley, He's like, hey Nick, you want me to tell you which coaches here leave the bags of money at the our players' houses? And I was like, you know, I don't even want to know. I want—I mean, you can look, and you'll know if you go on my channel which who was there. But it was a lot of big names, and um it, it is frustrating because I know Jay Billis, for instance, wants to argue you should just have you should negotiate with high school seniors, and you can pay them whatever you want to get them to go. And I—it's t- easy it's to like, do
0: that when you're a Duke alum, right? And you know that your your alum your your alma mater has deep pockets and. Yeah. Has been at the top of the game, and will continue. You know, they 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 have one of the biggest budgets in college basketball. So why wouldn't they be able to go out and afford to yeah. do that?
1: And, and don't you think that they've sort of uh, you know dodged a bullet? Maybe so has uh, Carolina. Uh, there's a little little things Carolina. that pop up <laughs> here and there that don't sound right, and you can't imagine it was an isolated incident, right? And yet, you know, there's some is it sweeping under the rug? I don't know. I, listen, you don't have to burn it down if you don't want to. But uh, you know, I just wonder about some of those programs because you know that the. the Oh my goodness! Who was the guy from Duke who was buying all the jewelry in New York? Um, and he's playing for the NBA right now. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Uh, anyway, you know, little things like that where you're like, okay, he as a college kid would not have had hundred thousand dollars to buy jewelry uh, on, on whatever. But
0: you know, it, I think when this stuff all started coming out, I would have been concerned if I were at any school that was in the running for any of these kids that were mentioned as receiving money and payments and all that stuff. If if my school was, was on that list and and I got that kid, you know, and, and somebody else didn't. And so if you know if you're recruiting against these, these other schools and these schools are, are getting these guys and, and you got an all American that Auburn didn't or you got an all American that USC didn't, it's like, well how come you got that guy and the other school didn't? If the other school's getting caught for paying kids how did you get the kid if you didn't pay for him? If they've, you know, allegedly been caught paying other kids, so that that would make me nervous. And I don't, I don't think Marquette's been in that situation. I think there's a pretty good comfort level that Marquette's in the clear. But there, there's a lot of other schools out there that are like. Okay, we've we've got all Americans, and we beat these schools out that are getting in trouble now. How do we how do we get these guys?
1: Yeah, yeah, and and by the way, in case people don't know, the connection Marquette is Steve Wojcikowski, who was a longtime assistant at Duke. Uh, you remember a, a player named Rashard Griffith? I do. So that was one of those instances where he was also to go to, I believe, it was Illinois, and then all of a sudden Stu got there, and poof, there he was uh, on campus. You know, last second, whatever it was, and. Uh, you know, he was he was actually great. I, I, I've never quite understood why a kid who could be tw- a 20 and 10 player as a freshman in the Big Ten never got a shot in the NBA.
0: I You know, somebody showed me a, a clipping from a Chicago paper when, when he signed with Wisconsin. It was a quote from his mom that they got a better offer. And they're like, what does that mean? I said, right. that's a good question. What does that mean? It should be a scholarship, just like the other schools of scholarship.
1: Oh yeah, so, yeah. Well, and you remember even further back, uh, the um, the Illinois situation with Iowa, right? Where um, oh gosh, who was the center who they they got Bruce him on Bruce Pearl tape. and,
0: and yeah. Deion Thomas. Deion Thomas. And, and I'll tell you, I I was inundated with mail from Iowa when Bruce Pearl was there because Deion Thomas is like a year ahead of me. Yeah. And and I was so nervous when that went down because the way college basketball worked at that time, you know, I had. I had a rotary phone at home that didn't have call waiting because <laughs> my parents were too cheap to get call waiting. <laughs> and and I had a, a great coach in Rick Cobb who used to be an assistant for Rick Majera, so he knew the game. Oh, and wow. and we always ask him when he was coaching us in AAU, why aren't you coaching in college? And he's like, because I'm making more money right now working for a, a mutual fund company. Went, okay. And he actually got back into AAU because he's good friends with uh, Tim Allen, um, whose son, Jason Allen, was my age. And... Uh, but it was. Am I saying that? Is that the, Is it Tim Allen? Because I know another Tim Allen.
1: Well, there's a Tim Allen who's on TV all those
0: years. No, right? it's not that Tim <laughs> Allen. It's, it's a guy who played at at Miami, oh. um, and he played uh, in in the ABA for a while, and and his son oh. was a four year starter at San Jose State. It, it, it's not Tim Allen. It's Jason Allen. Will Allen. God, why okay. am I thinking Tim Allen? Will Allen uh, was good friends with Rick Cobb, and he talked him into coaching the AAU team with them. Um, so. It, it's, I, now I lost my train of thought because I was struggling so much to, to <laughs> grab on to Will Allen. We were
1: talking about Deion Thomas and how you were afraid Oh, yeah. Of so so Rick said, you know what? If these coaches
0: are bothering you, just say you can call me from 7 to 9 o'clock every night you know, or five nights a week or whatever. And my wife played at Carolina, and her and her sister were both recruited by everybody in the country because they were both really tall. And it was so bad for them that they don't even like talking on the phone anymore to this day because... They just got so sick of talking on the phone to people when they were in high school. And so I had this 7 to 9 o'clock window, and coaches knew that. They knew I had call I had no call waiting, so it's not like somebody else could call in. So their job was to call me at exactly 7 o'clock and keep me on the phone until 9 <laughs> o'clock so nobody else could talk to me. Wow. And and I talked to so many different coaches, and, and you're a high school kid, and you don't want to be mean to anybody, but you know somebody from Bumble Stump State is calling you, and, you just want to say, look, I, I just don't have an interest in going to your school. I'm sorry, and and some of these coaches were very persistent. So, you know, when that stuff came out with Deion Thomas, I was thinking to myself, wow, did, was Bruce Pearl one of those coaches that I was trying to get rid of, and I just got fed up with them. And and if he said, why why wouldn't you consider Iowa, and did I say, and if he like suggested it, you know, like why aren't you considering Iowa? Is, is somebody else paying you? You know, what would, would I've said. Yeah, I'm getting paid, and then just hung up. And and maybe maybe I did. I don't know, but it, if I did, it never came out, and I never did get paid. But I never never had to worry about going to Iowa. But um, from what everybody says, the thing that upset the the industry so much was that it was Bruce that turned the guy in of all yeah. people. <laughs> so that's the
1: backstory for the people who who are, I'm sure way too young to remember that uh, the uh, they were recording the tapes uh, of Bruce Pearl promising a lot of money to uh, recruit Deion Thomas. Or no, Deion Thomas said oh. he got he got a car from Illinois. Right, and, and then got a blazer got, um, and
0: money yeah, from a Chevy blazer. Remember those? Um, yeah, those were the hot vehicle back then. Yeah. Oh
1: yeah, and so, uh, but out of that, by the way, what I understood when I was at Wisconsin was that because that when that happened, every team would have a folder on everybody else's violations. And the second a team would turn somebody in, they would just drop their folder off to the NCAA as well. So it almost was like this gentleman's agreement after that, where, you know, if they had dirt on you, they're going to save it until, you know, in case you were going to try and turn them in, which is interesting. Uh, I I believe that it was kind of a rumor, you know, around town, but it sounds reasonable at that point that like, that's probably what teams would do to to stop other people from whistleblowing. And, you know,
0: you don't, Realize when you're a 17-year-old kid how dirty the game is. Even back then, it was it was pretty dirty. And uh, I had but not one for you school, though. Is that
1: what you're saying? It wasn't dirty for
0: you. I, it wasn't um, on the surface. Nobody was offering me anything. Um, but you know, 20, 30 years later, these stories come out, and I find out that one of the schools that was recruiting me that I didn't want to go to when I when I said I'm I'm not concerning you anymore, they they thought you know at the time I was I was looking at you know certain schools are like well, you know, Marquette's an NCAA time bomb waiting to go off, which obviously never happened. And I'm like, why would they single out Marquette, you know, when I'm looking at all these other schools, and, and come to find out years and years later, the assistant coach who was recruiting me was sleeping with a girl in the ticket office. And the girl in the ticket office was sneaking into the men's basketball office and stealing recruiting information and feeding him all kinds of recruiting information. There were no violations, but, I mean... Would you do that? You know, this guy was married and he had kids and he was sleeping with a girl in a ticket office to try to get information on a recruit. Just total scumbaggery, you know? Just awful.
1: So let's talk about you as a player for a second because I think people want to put in their minds that they haven't seen the footage yet. You you come in the league, you got a nice crude cut. You're seven feet. Seven feet even? Is that what we're talking about? Seven one. Okay, seven one. Now, let me ask you this could you shoot threes back then?
0: I made a three in the NBA. Hey. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you did. I you I never 10. shot a three. I never shot a three in
0: college. Um, I went out and I worked out for Portland, and I had my best workout for the Trailblazers. If Aaron, if Aaron McKee wasn't available, they said they were going to draft me, and they got Aaron McKee. Um, but they had me shoot threes, and I'd never really shot threes before. And, and for whatever reason, I was draining them, just killing it. Huh. And uh, and so they were really excited about it. It was never really a part of my game. I was always a back to the basket guy. And and then after that, I never really shot threes again until I got to Seattle, and George Carl said, you're gonna shoot threes. And every day in practice, every shoot around, I was with Sam Perkins, and we'd shoot threes, and and I shot them proficiently enough that they felt comfortable with me shooting them in games, and I think probably first several times I did it, I wasn't comfortable shooting them in a game, even though I knew I, was, I had the ability to knock it down, and I hit one eventually. <laughs> <laughs> but but that was it and, and the other ones it's not like I shot air balls or bricks or anything it just didn't fall and, and uh, the line wasn't as far back as it is now and it was, it was way too close but um, well, yeah
1: well here's what's interesting about that because as the three pointer has become so prevalent now I remember you know we had bulls tickets all those years from you know the Jordan era and I remember, this is right before you got to Seattle, but you know, game one of the finals um, in Seattle versus, uh, oh, you know what? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It was game one of the Bulls, um, I'm sorry, Bulls-Lakers in 91, but Sam Perkins was on that team. And Sam Perkins, who was 6'10", lefty, you know, bat, you know the kind of guy that would be back in the basket. You know, back then, you didn't. it was hard to watch Western Conference teams, right? They didn't really have league pass. We didn't really know as much. I was a Lakers fan, but I didn't quite see a lot of games. He started shooting threes, and you could like almost hear a gasp in the crowd in Chicago Stadium when he started, and he was hitting them right. They won Game yeah. One on one, and it was like, what is going on here? Um, so you know, it, 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 this notion that like you know the big guys shooting threes now is new. I I, I don't really know if it's that new, right? I mean, certainly it, in your area you saw it.
0: No, Jack Sigma When I was in in grade school and junior high in Milwaukee, was shooting threes for the Bucks. That was that was Don Nelson. Yeah. And Don Nelson was was putting that on Jack and Jack had a good stroke and could knock the shot down from outside It's just you know Did you ever go through a, a system or a coach where? They wanted bigs to step out on the floor and stretch the floor and shoot the three and I I never did until I made it to Seattle and played for George Carl.
1: So talk about what kind of player like if you wanted to compare yourself to somebody maybe now So the youngins could get a handle on what kind of player you were can you compare yourself to anybody in the recent years?
0: I would just say go to Basketball Reference and, and look up who they compare you against. And, oh, we
1: and can do that. Yeah, um,
0: that's probably a, a good comparison if there's modern players in there or not. That's statistically, <laughs> at least, that, that gives you an idea of what kind of player I was.
1: Well, the only... Okay, Cole Aldrich, Bill Wennington, Myers Leonard, although he shoots threes. Oh, Paul McKeskey. Interesting.
0: Yeah. All so, right. And, and Paul shot threes, too. Um, but... I was a shot blocker, and, and I wasn't as much of a scorer. You know, I I, I could I scored at a pretty good clip in college, but I was always the fifth option in offense on every NBA team I was on, and not without good reason because their NBA is full of fantastic scorers. So most of my points came off of offensive rebounds or drop-offs on layups, and you know, not not the first priority. Like let's go down and run a set for Jim. That never never happened in the NBA.
1: Really, and a set for you would have been get on that right block and lob it into him and let him go. Yeah, run
0: America's play a box screen, you know, screen down, turn and post, and 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 I could count literally on one hand the number of times we ever, you know, any team ever said let's let's run a play and get Mac the ball <laughs> and see what happens. It just didn't happen.
1: Wow. Well, you know, listen, uh, it, it happens, right? You have to be a team player, and however that that uh, mm-hmm. shakes out. So you got to Seattle right after they played the Bulls and the, the, the that great Bulls team in the finals. Yes. And I, I'm wondering, and you played, you know, 79 games for them, and you started 79 games. You actually played all, all 82, but you started 79. And um, what what was that? Were they hoping that you were going to come in and sort of get them to the next level and then win that finals?
0: Yeah, I think I was a piece to the puzzle. They, they saw their team was getting older, and uh, I was a younger player. And, and to be quite honest with you, my second year in the league, if you look at the last 10 or 12 games, I don't know how many, um, when I was drafted by the Bullets, my agent was excited, even though they had Kevin Duckworth and George Miroson on the roster because he didn't see either one of those guys having much of a career in terms of their ability for their bodies to hold together so he's like you're gonna get time even though you're the third center if you make this team that you'll get an opportunity yeah and i had some jimmy jimmy Linem gave me some minutes but it wasn't until the very end of my second year when everybody was hurt and kevin duckworth was gone but george Mirasan finally ended up with an injury that prevented him from Uh, playing that I went out and I played 35 minutes a night or so and averaged almost a double-double almost had a triple-double against the Bulls and then one of those seasons when they won a a bazillion games in a championship and played pretty well against Seattle too and um, so based on that short time span and that small sampling of games teams saw that if I played 35 minutes a night I could put up some pretty solid numbers and, and so I had a lot of interest as a free agent after my second year
1: Aha. So you came in, uh, and that was, remember, that was Gary Payton, Detlef Schrempf, uh, another guy who was probably ahead of his time as a small ball four, um, and Sean Kent. Let me ask you this. Um, and, and These are your teammates, so you don't have to speak ill of anybody, but here, I got roasted on Twitter when, when Gary Payton made the uh, Hall of Fame a few years ago. Um, for me, and again, the, the caveat is, is that back then it was hard to watch a lot of Western Conference games, right? So I saw all the finals games and really got to see that. I probably saw some of the playoff games in the in years before with Gary Payton. But, like, my, my take on who should be in the Hall of Fame is if I watch a guy live and I walk out of that stadium and say to myself, man, I just saw a Hall of Famer. And when you would watch that, that Seattle team, that's not the guy who you would walk away saying, man, that's a Hall of Famer. Sean Kemp was the guy you would have said. Wow. Like, that was my impression of that. What did you think about that?
0: Um, I, I thought Gary Payton was, was a Hall of Fame caliber point guard. Probably one of the very best I ever played with. And, and you just look at his numbers that he put up every night. Just staggering. And um, I thought Detlef Schrempf was probably one of those very elite guys. Uh, I thought Sean Kemp was. I thought Vin Baker was. I mean, they really had a loaded team. You know, they had other guys like Hersey Hawkins and Dale Ellis and, and Sam Perkins who were really good at specific things, but guys like Detlef and Gary and Sean and Vin could just take over games by themselves. They could create their own offense. That, um, you know, when they wanted to, they could be very good defensively, and, and some wanted more than others. Gary and and Detlef, you know, really came to the forefront defensively. You know, Det was was always the guy we put on whoever was hard to guard on the other team. And Gary was obviously, you know, all the, all NBA defensive player for years and years, but but the other guys were certainly very talented enough to do that. And, and so I've, you know, I've I've played with a lot of other guys that were really good and, and there's a handful, you know, like Chris Weber was really good like that. And I thought Jawan Howard eventually turned into a player that was really good like that. And I'm sure there's more that I'm just not thinking of right now. Stefan Marbury, I thought was like that. Um, But, you know, I don't know if it's political or if you don't get a certain number of NBA championships or All-Star appearances. I mean, all you know, all those things are indicators. And and if a guy has a great career and never makes the finals or never makes you know a, an NBA championship, is he going to be snubbed from the Hall of Fame? I don't know. It it probably happens sometimes, and, and doesn't happen in other instances, depending on maybe how much people like or dislike a guy.
1: Right. Um, now that year, so you had you had played the Bulls to six games the year before. Sorry, the Seattle did the team before you got there. What happens in that next in year when you when you get there in the playoffs that doesn't see a rematch and then Utah ends up getting in? I'm trying to remember. The Rockets beat you in the semifinals.
0: Yeah, the Rockets beat in us seven. in the semifinals. Did we play Minnesota in the first round? Phoenix. Phoenix. Okay, we beat Phoenix the first year, and then I think the second year I was there, we beat Minnesota in the first round. Um, you know, Houston was a really good team, and they had Hakeem Olajuwon, and they had Clyde Drexler, and those guys were really tough. And um, you know, just it wasn't a guarantee. We had a, a great team during the regular season, but uh, you know, when it came down the stretch, you know, Nate McMillan was not the player when I got there that he was year before. Each each year Nate's body um, continued to decline to the point where when I got there they were hardly playing him at all. They were just saving his body, hoping to get minutes out of him in the postseason because his knees were shot and, and his body was just breaking down. So um, it wasn't like they just took out one piece and put one other piece in and, and it all fell apart. There was you know, a variety of factors going on. George Carl, uh, unbeknownst to me, didn't get along really well with Wally Walker at all. And, and I think that carried over into, you know, some of the personnel stuff that was going on. Um, it carried over into playing time for various guys, I think, and, and it was just frustrating. And I understand both of their positions, and, and, and I think there's validity to both of it. It's just unfortunate that the team was so close to um, being an NBA championship team and couldn't find a way, you know, from top to bottom, to put together, and I certainly put some of that blame on myself because, you know, I wanted to play better. Every year in the league than I than I did, and and I certainly played better in Seattle than I did in Washington, but I didn't elevate my game to the level that certainly people out there were expecting, and you know I ended up getting traded in New Jersey as a result.
1: Okay, well you know that that uh, that happens, and certainly just the experience I have to imagine it was was really valuable to you as well. I'm I'm kind of looking at that team and the, and the assistant coaches on that team. I'm kind of curious your thoughts because you're talking Dwayne Casey, Terry Stotts. Uh, Tim Gergerich, who is just, you know, the, the defensive mastermind behind how we play defense these days, and even Bob Weiss, who goes way back in the day. Uh, yeah. Did you know that, you know, Dwayne Casey and Terry Stotts were going to be head coaches that will be very successful?
0: Well, Bob Weiss had already been a head coach, um, and Tim Gergerich was just different and special, and I knew it right away then, and everybody else did. He, You know, I, I've heard stories about his workouts in Vegas and how they're going now, and and they're very structured and organized, and a lot of stuff's going- We just flew out to Vegas to go work out with Gerg in the summer, because Gerg was the coach you wanted to work out with. He wasn't judgmental, he just wanted to help you. He just, you know, his motives were true and pure, and it wasn't, you're making me look bad as a coach. He just, you know, he wants you to help, he wants to help your game. So guys automatically gravitate towards Gerg, not that there was anything wrong with the staff George had, I've, that was by far my favorite coaching staff, top to bottom, just so much talent, so much knowledge. And I'm not surprised at all that uh, Terry and Dwayne ended up as head coaches in the league. Um, and, and they were just, it, it was a brilliant team. To come from Washington, and I thought Jimmy Lyon was a really good coach. I thought Derek Smith was a good coach. Um, but the, the resources they had in Seattle, we had actual scouter reports like we had back in college when I got to Seattle. And they paid some guy who did advanced analytics, and when you read a scouter report, it would say, Kimba Mutumbo turns over his left shoulder 85% of the time, and he makes 72% of those shots, and he turns over his right shoulder 15% of the time, and he makes 35% of those shots. Well, Make Dikembe turn over his right shoulder. We had nothing like that in, um, we had nothing like that in Washington, and we had nothing like that in New Jersey. Um, so Seattle was really way ahead wow. of their time. And, and Terry Stotts and, and Dwayne Casey and 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 Bob Weiss and those guys put those scouting reports together. They had every play that the other team ran listed out they had you know paragraph on every guy they had all the tendencies and it was just phenomenal intelligence that i'm sure is standard now in the league but Mm -hmm. it was just you know there was nothing to look at no way to prepare outside of that with some of these these other coaching staffs that we had and and truthfully you know i think some were capable of doing it but you know they they knew who their players were and and uh, they just leave the scout report laying on the floor and wouldn't read it anyway. And, and Seattle put our names on the upper right corner of each scout report. I still have all of them. I wow. kept all of them. And I always tore my name off the corner in case I did leave it somewhere.
1: So
0: you get fined if you leave your scout report sitting around somewhere. Yeah. Um, so uh, I made sure I never did that, but I, I took them with me because they were a great resource in New Jersey. When we're playing a team, it's like, well, I'm going to grab my scout report from last year and, and go through their personnel again and remember if this guy likes to drive to the middle or if he likes to drive with his right hand and pull up for mid-range jump shots or you know all the tendencies that now all that advanced analytics stuff yeah. I'm sure it's just everybody does it.
1: I mean you're giving me flashbacks now to putting in a VHS tape which you know if you needed to rewind for like 3 seconds you like it would take you 30 seconds just to get it back and then start playing again. Uh, I mean I remember being in the basketball office we would literally cut out clippings basketball game recaps from high school from like the 15 or 20 papers across the country that we were subscribed to and I had to paste them up into a book and then you know it's almost like the presidential daily brief right I would have to do yeah. that for our coaching staff and uh, it's crazy now with synergy and the different ways you have to to scout and, and see everything um, you know I, I, it's funny I, I don't know if the kids today will even you know respect what we had to go through but certainly to be able to get that information back then and do it and you're blowing me away i don't think i realized that you know the the, the supersonics staff had that information even back then uh or even like dean smith was doing points per possession in the 60s i believe so that's just crazy how how forward thinking some guys are
0: there was there was a group of brothers or the cohens or somebody like that that was doing this information and pat riley from what i heard uh, he liked it so much, he hired him on staff in Miami and then cut off everybody else in the league who was subscribing to him. Because <laughs> he, he saw it as a competitive advantage. And so um, other people came along and filled the void, and it's it's more common now. But um, yeah, that was that was invaluable to have. And, and just looking back at some, you know, the boxes sitting somewhere. Looking back at those, like when I went to New Jersey and guys were like, let me see what they said about me. I'm like, well, oh, yeah, that's me. It's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, listen,
1: Jim, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and and really just having a a rambling, insightful conversation about college, pros, uh, recruiting, whatnot. Uh, I I really appreciate it, certainly going back in memory lane. And uh, I I wish you also the biggest luck tonight against Harvard uh, in the NIT. Thank you very
0: much. And, and I want to give a shout out to my sponsors. Um, first and foremost, Optima Batteries, because they allow me to take time off of work because I work for Optima Batteries ah. uh, to do podcasts in the middle of the day. Uh, Lingenfelter Performance Engineering, uh, BF Goodrich Tires, Forge Line Wheels, Willwood Disc Brakes. It seems weird that it's car stuff, but I work in the automotive aftermarket. So uh-huh. uh, all those folks sponsor me. And, and I, I also have started a podcast recently in my own. Uh, with a, a Marquette alum, uh, John Scott Lewinsky, it's called Marked Men, M-A-R-Q-D-M-E-N.com, and uh, we talk about basketball, but we talk about car stuff. And John's really a fascinating guy who's been all over the world. In fact, we reconnected uh, because I'm a BF Goodrich brand ambassador, and they had me on a on, on an event where they were unveiling a new truck tire in Baja, Mexico, and we were pre-running the Baja 1000, and John was down there. Uh, doing some stories on that tire for some magazine or something like that, and it's like, John Lewinsky and Marquette, and I'm like, holy cow. And so we hit it off there and have stayed connected ever since, and and probably, you know, I, I did Adam Ryan's podcast, the In All Airness podcast, several years ago, and ever since then, I've kind of been intrigued by him, because you know, he just hit me up on Twitter. I'm like, sure, I'll do it, and, and anybody who hits me up on Twitter for a podcast, I'm like, yeah, what do I care? I'll do it. Um, I just became intrigued by him. I started listening to more of them, and and uh, got to the point where I said, you know, John, I'm I'm getting done doing the radio for Marquette after this season. I'd, I'd love to do a podcast, but I don't think I'm gym enough to carry it by myself. And and you're like the most fascinating guy I've ever met. You want to do a podcast with me? He's like, sure. So um, he does all the the heavy digital lifting, and and uh, we're putting it together. We have two episodes out. and We'll have more out.
1: Awesome. You know, on So a regular keep, basis coming soon. Well, I'll definitely subscribe and keep your eyes out, sports fans, for marked men. Uh, an interesting discussion on, like Jim just said, basketball and uh, the, probably, uh, you described it as the most interesting man in the world, right? Kind of like the uh, Dos Equis guy?
0: Yeah, he doesn't look anything like the Dos Equis guy, but he <laughs> knows everything there is to know about booze, and food, and boxing, and cars, and travel, and just, you know, you could, music. You could talk to the guy forever. I mean, we, you know, I took him a Rival Sons concert. He knew exactly who Rival Sons was, and and you know everybody says, oh, I like all kinds of music, and then I start playing all kinds of my music that I like to listen to. they like, yeah, I guess I really don't like all kinds of music like you do. And then John, you know, he it clicks with him. It registers. And he knows who all these people are. He appreciates the musicianship, and and so we, you know, movies, and he worked in in Hollywood as a writer for a long time, and knows all kinds of interesting stories about that stuff. So it's it's cool having conversations with them. You never know what's going to pop up.
1: For sure. Well, I will definitely check it out. Hopefully, everybody out there checks it out as well. And uh, Jim, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. And don't forget sports fans at b Breakdown. Not a channel. We're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Jim?
0: I'm in. Happy back sometime. I'll talk to you off again.